weeks. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to turn back to Genesis uh, again this morning. If you will open uh, your Bibles to Genesis 3. But uh, we don't normally do this. I don't like to have people flipping around in all sorts of ways. I try to put stuff on the screen, but because I want us to see it with our eyes and have markers in our Bibles to go home and hopefully read this some more, um, I need you to, uh, or I would like you to, mark in your Bibles three other chapters that we're going to be turning to uh, throughout our time today. Uh, I promise these are not three individual deep dives. It'll be 30 minutes apiece, so don't worry. Um, but uh, we're going to have, uh, we're going to be turning to First Chronicles 16, Luke 9, and Ephesians 2. So if you can find... You, Luke and Ephesians are pretty easy to find when we flip there later, but First Chronicles is the one that can get a little bit lost in the weeds. It's about halfway through the Old Testament. Um, you go past First, Second Kings, and you find First Chronicles um, chapter 16. So mark there, please, uh, Luke 9 and then Ephesians 2, and we'll give you time to turn there when we get there in a little while. Just wanted to give you a heads up so we're not flipping through pages and missing out um, on uh, uh, what God is saying to us in a little bit. So um, Easter is just three weeks away. Uh, we're counting down to it, not just in days, but through every Sunday that precedes it, um, because we're building up to Easter with a question. Uh, we're gathering together around the question that we believe is explained and is punctuated by and in the Easter story. So our question that we began to ask last week is, why did God create the world? So that's a pretty broad question, a pretty heavy question that can take, a, take us a lot of directions, I know, which is why we're spending a lot of time talking about it. Why did God create the world? Not just in a broad or generic sense, but why did God create this world? And we talked last week about what we mean by saying this world, because this world um, is not very godly in and of itself, is it? Um, so we asked the question, why did God create this world that quickly became sinful and broken? And of course, he could have saw that coming, so why did he let this happen? Why did God create this world that quickly, I mean within a couple days, became sinful and broken and has rebelliously remained, as, no matter how much he's intervened, it's rebelliously remained in a disastrous state. I'm not saying you're a disaster. You know, maybe some days you are, but not today, right? You're in church. I'm not saying you're a disaster or you're rebellious, but I'm saying the world in general is kind of a mess, isn't it? And come on, we contribute to the mess sometimes. Um, sometimes. So to answer the question, why did God create the world, we went straight to the source. We opened to Genesis 1 last week, and we usually think Genesis 1 is about how God made the world, but actually we discovered it tells us why God made the world, as we unpacked last week. The Bible is very clear. God created this world from his love for his glory. And of course, this world would require a lot of love being in the state that it's in. But before it was broken, before it was sinful, before there was sin, God made this world out of the overflow of his love within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Word, God the Spirit, loving one another, satisfied in one another. They were loving in harmony, and that love spilled over into creation, and the motive behind creation was God's own glory. His eternal, his infinite, his matchless glory on display throughout a new creation in new forms and new figures. God made humanity, you and I, he made people in his image and he gave them a commandment, didn't he? To fill the earth, subdue the earth with the image of God all over creation, all for his glory. Now, how'd that work out? Not good. 
uh, not because God was bad, but because people were bad. But mankind chose not to glorify God. Rather, they attempted to glorify themselves above God and as gods. That was the goal when they took the fruit of the, knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So this begs the question, why did God create, or you can use the word allow or permit, why did God permit a world like this to come into being and stay this way and, and, and do what it's done? Why did he create this world? Well, thankfully, the Bible doesn't end in Genesis 3. <laughs> the Bible is all of God's story. From cover to cover, it tells a complete story. And if we let God be the storyteller, we see how God always intended to glorify his name, as in the whole story tells how God always intended to glorify his name, and the climax of the story actually comes in Easter. God himself enters the story through the incarnation of Jesus. His word becomes flesh, the Father moving over, the Spirit moving within, and the Word moving in. This was always God's plan. Not just inner creation, but to die at the hands of creation. This is probably maybe the hardest hurdle to overcome, but the Bible is actually very clear about this. I want you to listen to this megaton that Peter drops when he talks about the death of Jesus. Peter says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, as in this was always God's plan. Jesus' death on the cross, the blood of Christ. being purchasing the sinners like us he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times in his literal earthly life for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory it was always God's plan to glorify his name through the death of Jesus Christ for the saving of sinners like us something that's really awesome that is a whole other sermon in itself. Revelation 13 verse 8 says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. As in God had this planned ahead of time. As in it was already a done deal, a predetermined decision for the glory of God. So why did God create a world that would rebel against him? Why did he do that and allow that knowing what it would, what it would be? Because he always intended to glorify his son So, of course, it's no surprise that Jesus enters creation, dies at the hands of sinners. On the cross, he shouts that line that we looked at last week in closing, it is finished. That that phrase, those three words in Greek are one word. We get the word telos from it, which is God's ultimate plan, God's grand design. As in Jesus says, finally, this is what it was always working towards. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And finally, creation can be what it was always destined to be. God's telos, his grand design to display his gracious glory through his son for our sin so that, we, so that he could be glorified through our saved lives. God is love and in his love he was most glorified by the death of his son, an act of love by God for us and for creation. Jesus' death most glorifies God, which is why it was always a part of the story. It was always the pinnacle of the story. So why do we exist? At the basest and broadest understanding, we exist for God's glory made possible through Jesus Christ. We looked at Adam and Eve, how they were placed in the garden last week, and they were given a few simple commandments. They were given a commandment and a pathway to true joy, yet they chose misery and they chose death. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, having established this foundation, is talk about how we can live for God's glory. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at 
some pretty general subjects and obstacles. And then the last few weeks of this series, we're going to be talking about the particular gifts of Christianity. And maybe we should have done that in the reverse. But my hopes are that today and next week, by casting a broad net, that we will, uh, as creatures of God, a creation of God, we will cling to Him for the help that only comes from Him. So my goal is that we're convinced more than ever that we need Jesus to save us and change our lives, having already established that we can only be saved through Him. I hope that when we start talking about those details, we'll just relish and cling to His life. So we talked about what prevents us from realizing God's creative purpose, what prevents us from living for his glory. Sin is in all of us. We individually struggle with it. Creation is cursed with it. Yet God's purpose remains. We were created for his glory. So you almost could have rephrased last week's question like this. Why did God make me? Because we talked very individualistic, very personal last week. He made me, made you, we talked for his glory. And of his love, he sent Jesus to die a glorifying, saving death for me and for you. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. He provided what we fail to be able to do on our own. And that glorifies God and exalts his grace. But today I want to branch out just a little and ask a question that might seem a little bit the same, but actually requires an equally difficult and maybe more challenging conversation for us to have because it's not just dealing with me and you as individuals, it's dealing with the whole world. I want to ask, why did God make us? Emphasis and as in all of us, all seven billion of us. Now there were more before we existed and there will be more after we're gone, but right now there's about seven point so billion in the world So we look around and there are so many of us and we're all so different, we're all so distinct, we're all so unique. And we read Genesis 1 and we see the command, Adam and Eve, to fill the earth with images of God, be fruitful and multiply. And we can interpret that in two ways. So we can can have this conversation about why did God make us and we can go two directions with it and there are two options for us to consider this morning. Why did God create us? Option one is that we are to be 7 billion different verticals, and it's up and down, us to God. Option one is that, okay, God made all of us, and we're all here on the same planet, and we are meant to glorify God individually, but my life has nothing to do with yours, and your life has nothing to do with mine. I'm accountable for me, you're accountable for you, and we have no responsibility, we have no social or connective responsibility for one another. It's just me and God, and you and God. We may bump into each other along the way, but it's not about anybody but me and God, and you and God. That's one option. That's the option that we're most comfortable with if we're being honest. It's the one that resonates with us the most. And let me be clear, we are personally responsible for our lives. When we get to heaven, we're going to be judged individually for the decisions that we made, the lives that we lived. No one can answer for me and no one can answer for you but me and but you. But if we consider the story the Bible tells, I think the second way is more right and better way to interpret God's creative purpose. The second option, I think, is the better option. That we're to be seven billion crosses. A life that glorifies God doesn't only consider the vertical, but understands the importance of the horizontal. As in, it's not just about me and God, but it's about those that I'm next to. That's why it's a cross, right? But that should make be significant in another way. That our lives are not just vertically oriented, but they are horizontally oriented, and both are very significant. 
Now here's what, uh, here's what I've discovered. We lean towards number one, but isn't it true that we are quick to remind God when the horizontal affects our attempts in the vertical? We are quick to blame other people. We're quick to tell God, God, I was trying to live for you, but somebody got in my way. See, we don't want to consider the other person as a responsibility, but we will definitely talk to God about the other person when they're a liability. Isn't it true that when somebody gets in our way, we'll quickly go to God and say, God, I was trying, but they came into my picture. I was trying, but they got in my way. So we might not be willing to say that living for God involves what we do for him and what we do for others, but we'll quickly remind God that when the other people may make it difficult on us. Isn't it true? I want to show you one verse there in Genesis chapter 3. When God confronts Adam about his sin, what is Adam's initial response? Genesis 3 verse number 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit. So what is Adam saying in this moment? God, I was trying to live for you, but this woman got in my way. So, hey, God, it's just me. It's just me and you. But, you know, I was trying, and she got in the way. So if all that matters is the vertical, why did Adam try to shift the blame? When it's us that could have used the horizontal help, we are quick to remind God about it, aren't we? Now, over in Genesis 4, which is our main focus this morning, in Genesis 4, we see this even more defined for us. We know the story of Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, and while this story teaches personal responsibility, it also communicates how intrinsic and how married our relationships with each other is in our efforts to glorify God. And what we're going to find out is personal responsibility does not equal individualism, but carries with it a definite communal element, as in our relationships matter in our attempts to glorify God. And don't take my word for it. Let's take God's. Genesis 4, you know the story, but let's read it. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. And now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering to the fruit of the fruit of the ground of the Lord, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it, or you can Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field. Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And here's the big anchor verse. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain's response was, how do I know? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it really my responsibility to worry about where my brother is? And that's kind of the point, isn't it? Verse 10. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So here's the problem. Cain and Abel, one was right with God, one wasn't. And how was it proven that Cain was not right with God? By his not being right with his brother. Isn't that how God proved it? God didn't say, okay, let me talk about your offering, Cain. I don't like what you gave me. How did God prove to Cain that his heart wasn't right in the fact that he had hatred towards his brother? Now, I know, I know, 
we may say, well, am I my brother's keeper? Am I, is this the message, Justin? Am I my sister's keeper? And some may push back. Who then is my brother? I mean, we're going to get technical, preacher. I mean, who are you telling me is my brother and who are you telling me is my sister? Could, is this just a family thing? I mean, because hey, I'm okay with saying the relationships matter if it's just the people in my house. Of course, brothers shouldn't hate each other and they shouldn't kill each other by all means. Or is it more? Or is there more to it? Well, in the early days of the world, it seems that everybody was aware that everybody was family. Things spiral out of control. There's a great flood. Things kind of restart with Noah and his sons and their family, but then things go awry again. And then there's the story of the Tower of Babel. You know the story. That the nation or the people of the world, all one people, all one language, come together against God. And God confounds their languages to protect them. And if you read Genesis 10 and 11, 72 people groups or 72 nations, important Behind that word, the word nations in Hebrew is goy. The word nations in Greek is ethnos. But the, bo- the meaning of both of them is ethnic groups. So don't think concrete nations, lines drawn on a map. Think people groups. Think you know, ethnic groups, people that, resp- you know, that, that identify with a certain you know, ethnicity. So of course from these 72, all of the world as we know it is filled and populated to this day. This is the origin of the world's diversity. Now, does it explain the differences that would come to be displayed in us? I think it can. Because as we've learned, none of, uh, none of this was catching God off guard. This was not a backup plan. This was all planned for God's glory. And clearly God intended on a world filled with people who all respect different shades and different aspects of his glory from the very beginning. Funny story. When I was in high school... Um, people, you know, in high school, everybody has different opinions, strong opinions, and everybody likes to argue with each other and bark at each other and basically repeat what their parents believe or their preacher believes. Well, in high school, I was in a physics class, uh, one of my favorite teachers who really loved me. Not really, but uh, I was in this physics class, and there was a debate that sparked about creation versus evolution. Uh, and the, the teacher was a Christian, but he believed more scientifically, and he didn't take the Bible literally, and you know, not to argue about whether that's right or wrong. He just didn't believe that creation happened as the Bible says it. Um, and he was kind of fueling the conversation between some of the non-Christians in the classroom that were really kind of barking with really two or three people that were pro-creation, pro-Bible, you know, God made us. And where the argument really fell apart was, on the Christian side, was people began to say, well, if, every, if God made everybody and evolution didn't happen, then why are there so many different people? Why does everybody look different? And why is everyone from different parts of the world? And skin color was the major, major issue. Um, and I was quiet in all this. People knew that I kind of liked the Bible. You know, I wasn't a preacher then, but I probably did a little preaching sometimes, not, you know, the right way, of course. But um, I, uh, one of my classmates... God bless him. His, his name was Zeke. I don't think he's watching, but I'm, I'm sure he's somewhere having a good time. Um, Zeke was trying to get me to join the argument, and I didn't want to. I mean, I, just, I, didn't really, I wasn't really able to, wasn't really, you know, you know, deep in the Bible enough to really get into this conversation and really didn't know where to start. And he said, Justin, you, I need some help. And he said, isn't there a psalm that tells about this and, and proves that God made all the nations of the world? And I'm thinking, Zeke, don't do it, don't do it. They're going to chew you up and spit you out. And then he says, listen, there's a psalm, he says this out loud, there's a psalm that says God made all the people, uh, for the different colors of the wind. When you, when you realize it, you'll know what, why it's funny. Because that's a Disney song. That's from Pocahontas. 
And I was telling him, I was like, Zeke, don't do it. He said, isn't there a song about the colors of the wind? I'm like, no, there isn't. Don't say it out loud. And he says it out loud, and everyone just burst into laughter. And I kind of finally joined the conversation, but it didn't end well. And then I realized that I think there is, the Bible does indeed tell us why God made all the nations, because we believe God's glory is so magnificent. God's image is so much deeper and so much more marvelous than can only be described in one, per, one person, one personality, one color even. And that God made all the nations of the world to properly and fully reflect how glorious he is. Isaiah would tell us this later on. This is a song the angels sing. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As in all the different nations of the world, all the different types of people, kinds of people, colors of people, they reflect the magnificent glory of God. Now, out of those original 72, God picked one of the tribe of Eber, which would be the Hebrew people, and he would start over with his own nation, or start his own nation, Israel. Well, God started with Abraham, and remember his words to Abraham. He says to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. In you, all the people of the world will be blessed. But what did this mean? Blessed by knowing them, blessed by because of them, by proximity to them. The Jews understood this, that they would always be a cut above the rest. That God would always favor them more. That every nation would be, you know, would, would always understand that they were better than them. And, and listen, every nation had a superiority complex. Every nation believed its gods, it was the greatest, and its people were the best. Israel just so happened to know the real God and actually be the best. So when King David, years later, he united the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, many Jews believed that this was the beginning of their total and forever domination over the world. When David rebuilds the tabernacle and unites the nation in a new capital of Jerusalem, he writes a song and has the worship team perform it to capture the moment uh, how significant this, this capital gathering was. He knew Israel's destiny. As they sacrificed lambs that day, he looked forward to a greater day to come. And I want you to look over in 1 Chronicles 16. This song that uh, acknowledges what everyone already believed, but it goes beyond that. And it gives a preview of what God was working towards that would have been a surprise to the average Jewish person. So if you have your Bibles there in 1 Chronicles 16, listen to how the song begins in verse number 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of his wondrous work, glory in his name, let all the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face forevermore. And, and notice it, it closes in verse 13 in that, ver, that stanza, all seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen one. So the, the purpose of this psalm initially is about how God has chosen Israel and Israel is above the rest. And it goes on in verse 14. He is the Lord, our God. So this is a kind of an anthem for the Jews. He's our God, not yours. We're better than you. He's exalted us over everybody else. So this is kind of a rally for the Jewish people. Verse 19. When you were a few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. He rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. So this is all about how Israel were the chosen ones. How God's blessing on Israel was greater than his blessing or his feelings toward the rest of the world. But the next stanza shifts the narrative in a way that had 
had to have been, and I promise you it was jarring on the people in that day. Verse 23. Sing to the Lord, what is this next line? All of the earth. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Verse 28, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord glory do His name. And again, over and over again, we see this emphasis on all of the earth, all of the people. So you see there's a shift from just Israel to the whole world. So David stands for people who thought they would always be the only ones in the family of God. And David basically signifies to them that Babel is not forever. That God is going to bring us all back together. That this is just a stepping stone to where all the nations of the world will be brought in to know the one true God. That Israel was chosen initially above all other nations so that all other nations could ultimately be chosen. And that's not news for us. We know that. That that's the gospel. That's the, the movement of the church. God always had the whole world in mind, and he always intended on all of us realizing that we are in this together for God's glory. This hasn't changed. If anything, it's gotten more important to God as the world's gotten more diverse and more widespread and more filled. But I know what you're saying, because what did we begin this conversation talking about? Am I my brother's keeper? Who is my brother? And now we're talking about the whole world being invited, and and I know that this might be the question we have in response to these two pillars that we've laid this morning. Next slide. Everyone being invited isn't the same as everyone being united, is it? Because this is where the tension starts, isn't it? Because this is where the vertical and the horizontal have to start coming together. Yeah, there's the whole my brother's keeper thing, but are we really supposed to believe that refers to everybody? I mean, come on, preacher. Well, fast forward to Jesus, and we see him reiterate this idea that glorifying God is not just a vertical thing. If you want to turn to Luke 9, you can go ahead and do that. Jesus always taught that Christian worship, Christian faithfulness to God, he always taught that truly glorifying God was anchored in both a vertical and a horizontal love. In fact, Jesus taught that the horizontal validates and authenticates the vertical, as in you can't have one without the other, and if you have one, you'll have the other making it impossible to hide behind religion. Now, the Jews, they didn't mind this as long as they did not have to love someone that was not Jewish. Hello? As long as it was loving someone that looked like them and talked like them and believed like them, they were fine with this whole love God and love people thing. But then two things happened as Jesus continued his ministry. Luke tells the story that Jesus at one point was looking for a place for his group to stay as they were going to a festival in Jerusalem. James and John see this as an opportunity to test their newfound favor and power from God. So these two, they call a Samaritan inn. I don't know if it was a Holiday Inn, a Howard Johnson's, who knows. They call a Samaritan inn. I mean, you know, the the, the rates must have been pretty good back in the day. Um, They call a Samaritan inn about reservations. Hey, this is John and James, sons of thunder. We're really Jewish and we love being Jews and we don't like y'all. But oh, by the way, could you let us have a reservation? 
Jesus is our guy. You know, we're Jewish people going to a Jewish festival. Do you think we could stay in one of your rooms a couple nights? Can we get a preacher's discount too while you're at it? They knew they would get a big no. I think that was their point for calling this in. And they used this as a chance to get Jesus to confirm their displeasure for the Samaritan people. They knew they would get turned away, and they hoped they might finally have the power to settle the strife between Jew and Samaritan because Jesus was kind of making it seem that they were supposed to love these people, and they wanted to show Jesus that there's nothing lovable about these people. So in Luke 9, verse 54, this is the, this is the, 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 the way all that works out. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, saw the rejection, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? Now, you can't tell me they thought that on the fly. They were ready for this. They knew this was going to happen. They knew they were going to get rejected. They knew this was going to burn everybody up. Look how awful they are. Look how godly we are. Hey, Jesus, remember that time that Elijah brought fire on those, those heathens? Can we do the same? Because we've been practicing, and I don't know if I got, I got a little spark, and I know you can put the, you know, the torch on them. So can we do this? Because we really want to. And Jesus looked at them like they've got a couple of extra heads. He rebukes them. And says, do you not know or you do not know what manner of spirit you are of? He says, you guys don't get me, do you? Do you know why I've showed up on this planet? Do you know why I've come to save people? Well, they said, well, yeah, we know you're here to save people, but they're not people. I mean, they just didn't like them. And they didn't just not like them, they hated them. And it was mutual, don't worry. They're not people... And then they kind of snickered and it blew over. And then, and then, uh, after this, Jesus calls together 72 of his followers. 72, huh? 72 of his followers and sends them out to preach the gospel. And they all are very well aware of what that 72 number is significant for. Remember? Tower of Babel, the nations of the world. Could this be Jesus' way of saying, I'm going to bring all of them together under my blood? I'm going to bring the whole world together as one blood for God's glory? And while that should be a point of rejoicing, it scared the Jewish people. It terrified them because they wanted Jesus for themselves. They didn't want to share. The Jews were rattled by this. While he didn't explicitly mention foreigners, they knew the 72 was not a coincidence. For years it had been 72 and 1, and Jesus was supposed to be their Messiah, exalting them above the others, not treating them as equals. So one of the Jewish scholars comes to Jesus right after this and plays his game. He says, Jesus, I know what you're about. You're about loving God and loving people with all heart, soul, and strength. But Jesus, you're getting fairly fast and loose with this whole neighbor thing. And I want to make sure that I'm right. And I want to prove to everybody that I'm right. Because I need you to confirm that my neighbor is just a Jewish person. I need you to confirm to me that when you say love God and love people, you just mean the people that we're already related to and we're next to. Can you do that for me, Jesus? <laughs> and you can see that all of a sudden these two questions are not that different, are they? Who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? And in this moment, Jesus merges them. And he tells a parable to answer this guy in verse number 29 of chapter 10. 
The man wanting to test Jesus, wanting to justify himself, wanting to, to confirm his own beliefs, said, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells a parable. Jesus said, a certain man went down to Jerusalem from Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. And this is where the moment where everybody was hush quiet. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And he saw him. He had compassion on him. So he went and bandaged him, him up with his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, whatever you spend more. When I come, I will repay you. So which of these, he says, do you think was a neighbor to him? And the Jewish man, so racist against Samaritans, can't even say the Samaritan. He says, he who showed mercy on him. I'm not going to say it, Jesus. But I guess the one that was merciful. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? I don't want you to miss the significance of this moment. Jesus took two ethnic groups that absolutely hated each other and showed how the gospel at work destroyed those barriers. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't miss that in this parable. They hated them, and they hated them back. But this Samaritan, because he was a Christian, because he was a, a God-fearing, God-loving disciple, did not see the skin as an issue and saw it actually as an opportunity to show just how much God can reconcile this world as in bringing two people that were hating each other and bringing them together. That is the message of Christianity. Not just that everyone is invited, but that everyone can be united that we are our brothers and our sisters' keeper, that God is building a kingdom. He is calling together a people. He is forging a family out of all the nations of the world. And this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. But we're going to talk about it. If we're going to live lives that glorify God, we must understand our place amidst 7 billion others, 190 nations, 650 unique ethnic groups, and six major racial categories. This is the subject the church must get right, as this is one of the major things for which Jesus died. God created a world that is diverse, full of people that are so different, yet we share one thing in common, His image. And as we talked before, clearly His image is much more diverse, His glory is much more colorful and dynamic than we can imagine because the world is full of so much diversity. Now it's tempting to ignore this subject, to not have these tough conversations about how our lives are not separate from 7 billion other people, 190 nations, 649 other ethnicities. For a lot of reasons, this is especially difficult for us to talk about as Americans. Most of us, all of us, if someone were to ask us our ethnicity, what people group do you come from, we don't even know what to say. We're just detached from it. That's just our kind of white American culture. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We're still tribal people. We're tribal in a less organic way, more institutional. You know, we'll tell people about our economic status, our education history, what we like to do for fun. We'll tell people our politics, our religion. But we don't really talk about ethnicity. But now talk, about, talk to our brown and our black brothers and sisters, Asian and Middle Eastern brothers and sisters and neighbors, and it's something that's very important to them. Again, I'm not saying our culture is bad. I'm just stating, that, stating why it is the way it is. Part of it has to do with America being this melting pot, this, this individualistic society. Most white Americans, and I'm saying white Americans because we're all white, most white Americans don't lean on their ethnicity for their identity, and that's why it's sometimes jarring when we see our neighbors, black, brown, and others, they're so communal around their race and their ethnicity, and it just seems less important to us, and we just don't get it. To them, it's everything. And all around the world, there are some countries where people look the same, but there are dozens of ethnic groups within those nations because people cling to the history of their families. Now, I bring this up because our country today is very sensitive to this idea of celebrating, honoring, and recognizing the glory of God in the distinction and diversity of different ethnicities. Because we as Americans hear that and we think it's an attack on American values. But it's so important. We'll never appreciate why God made an us. It's not just me. We'll never appreciate why God made a human race with difference and diversity and unique from one another if we don't admit that as Americans we're starting off from a disadvantage. That may come across offensive to some Americans. It may seem like it's an attack on American exceptionalism, but I'm not a preacher of the American gospel. I'm a preacher of the gospel of the Bible. So I'm not worried about that stuff. The Bible tells about God's plan for the nations, his desire for racial and ethnic harmony, cooperation, and unity. Not wiping away diversity, but celebrating it and glorifying God in it. This is not something the church prioritizes. It just isn't. And I'm not just talking about the white church. I mean, churches of all kinds, of all colors and creeds, become very tribal and very exclusive, and they don't talk to each other. And there are a lot of demonic theories and social initiatives out there that are just making us more divided, and that's all the more reason that we must combat this with gospel truth. Plus, there are seas of non-believers that are behind these barriers. And once again, I'm responsible for a risen church, not others, so I want us to get it right because God says we got to get it right. See, if we just silo ourselves off and don't have these conversations that force us to look around, we miss the major part of God's creative purpose. And it's easy to say, well, I'm, well we're mostly white, Justin. Why do we need to talk about this? We all look the same. We don't got to worry about it. Now, that's the very reason we should be worried about this and at least work towards God's design. A lot of preachers won't touch this subject. Because it evokes political and economical ramifications. But that's usually because they're bowing to an altar of politics and economics that feel threatened by this subject. I don't care about that stuff. I don't. Because my goal as a preacher of the gospel is to promote racial, ethnic, harmony, cooperation, and unity for the glory of God. The first step we've got to take in understanding the importance of God's desire that we intersect with, cooperate with, and be united with people of all nations, ethnicities, and races is to understand that belonging to the human race means glorifying God cannot be accomplished while ignoring our relationship with each other, especially those that are different than us. 
Now, we already believe this. We teach love one another, and we hopefully practice it. But what I want us to see is that there are no bounds to this commandment. And full obedience requires that we seek racial and ethnic harmony, cooperation, and unity. That's why we've been so thorough showing how it's clearly in God's word, how Jesus punctuates this with this parable of the Good Samaritan to show the Jews your neighbor is the very people you've labeled your enemy. The world, this would only get more difficult as the Jews would go to the whole world and reach Gentiles that they didn't like even more than they hated the the Samaritans. When initially prompted to take the gospel to the Gentiles, their leader, Peter, said, heck no. Peter would later repent of that, and he would actually say in Acts 10, he says, y'all, listen, I didn't want to associate with Gentiles. It was forbidden by law for me to even be in the house of a Gentile, but God told me that was sinful, and that's why I'm here. The Apostle Paul, the most proud Jewish man alive, who became the ambassador to the Gentiles, he preached about this in Ephesians 2 because he saw this as fulfillment of God's plan for the nations. If you'll look with me in closing over to Ephesians 2, I want you to hear how Paul talks about the unity that God brought to Jew and Gentile. And the reason he's talking about it is because they were both resisting it. Gentiles didn't like the Jews. Jews didn't like the Gentiles. But Paul says it's so important that we get this. Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in flesh who were called uncircumcised, That at the time we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one, having broken down the middle wall of separation that we build up having abolished in the flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained the ordinance so as to create in himself one new man or one new humanity from the two, thus making peace. How God wants to see this harmony. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Why is there still enmity between people then? Because we resist this. And the reason why we can get away from it is we just get away from people that aren't like us. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that God is building on the foundation, the cornerstone of Christ, 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God's Spirit. This is our inheritance, church. Being built together. As we endeavor to, make, to, make, to be fully obedient to this in our lives, there will be some resistance. This will be inconvenient. Not because of any racism, and maybe there is some, but I hope not but because it just goes against our culture's drive to make us separate. Let's be honest, living for God in general is inconvenient. Sinners don't like living for God. So when considering something that involves so many hurdles and diverse opinions and proponents, you bet the enemy is going to make the impossible inconvenience exceedingly overbearing. He's worked pretty good to keep us from hearing today. Satan wages war against ethnic harmony. 
He fights against it with as much aggression as he fights against anything. His greatest tactic, contrary to what most will tell you, isn't hatred, it's indifference. It's downplaying how important this is to God. You know what? We say, well, let's just let them get in their corners and we'll get in our corners and we can all get to heaven one day and have a big party. But Paul told us in Ephesians that God is building a house. This is the house that God is building. And a house divided cannot stand. So we cannot just settle for coexistence or tolerance. We must strive for harmony, cooperation, and unity. And while there needs to be reconciliation, we must do whatever it takes to bring healing. It's easy to ignore this, church. It's not my strongest subject to preach on. And at any mention, there may be people that think there's political motivation. And I'll quit hiding it. There is political motivation. Jesus is my king. He's not white. He's a brown man. He's king of the Jews and also of the world. And my motivation is the kingdom that he is building and to help realize his will on earth as it is in heaven. Because what does Revelation tell us about one day in the future? John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, all tribes and tongues and people and languages. John sees this. He sees people of every color speaking every language there is. Entering heaven in the presence of the Lamb. So if this is our future, what's our excuse in the present? I just want to put that out there. This is as uncomfortable as a conversation to have with me and myself as it is anybody. If this is our future, what is our excuse in the present? If heaven is diverse, if God is glorified in diversity, how are we glorifying his name now by remaining passive and indifferent, comfortable and careless? It'd be one thing if we lived in a world where there is no racial tension and ulterior motives, but we live in a world that is a mess. All the more reason to drive us into the masses with a true message of reconciliation and unity. For some of us, we must begin with repentance, but for all of us, we must, we cannot remain indifferent. We as a church, we as believers must realize that glorifying God requires that we deal with the subject that is right in front of us every day. That we break the tension and we stand for racial and ethnic harmony, cooperation, and unity. We must strive. We must strive to be reconciled in and by Christ, to be united in purpose and passion. You say, Justin, why today? You know, it's not a holiday. You know, the social stuff was last summer. Why today? Because I set out a few months ago to do a series on how, why did God make the world? And you know what is right front and center in us every day in the world? A lot of different kinds of people. So how can I, a preacher, say this is how you glorify God without acknowledging the tension that exists just because people are different than us? Do we want to glorify God? The God whose full image is realized when we all come together under the blood of Jesus in his church, if this is what stands in the way of us glorifying God, what are we waiting on? Our efforts to love cannot stop at our brother or sister of the same color or interest. We must go deeper and wider. We must, because that is God's telos. For the gospel. For the world.
for his glory. You can make a difference every single day by taking that word from God in Ephesians and making it realized through your everyday life as we help unite the house that God is building. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your word today. Lord, forgive me for my inadequacy, for my frailty and easily distracted nature. Thank you, Father, that your word is true and your commandments to us are so important. God, we want to be a people that glorifies you fully and supremely. We want to be a people that realize why you made the world and glorifies you through our lives. In a world that is so different and so distinct, yet so divided, Lord, help us see that we must wrestle with this subject of racial harmony, cooperation, and unity. That that is what you died for, to bring people from all corners and all kinds and make us one. We do so by preaching the gospel, but we do so by loving each other like you've loved us. Not in spite of our differences, but because every difference represents a distinct angle and image of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.